0: Welcome to the second episode, and the second part, part two if you will, of the overview of the Milkhammer core rules, Milkhammer of course being a fan edition of Warhammer 40,000. Last time we talked about the game philosophy and fundamentals to this edition, followed up by an overview of the phases. Uh, I'm Austin Forrest, your host and I'm joined by Ruben Baker and Lethan Stewart. Hey guys Today we are going to start by talking about the weapon types in Milkhammer, which will cover both the ranged and close combat variety. So weapons are the you know essential manner of dealing damage in this game when, while eliminating your opponent is not the way to win, that's done through objectives, which we'll touch on later, this is one of the most important parts. Much like units, weapons have a characteristic profile, which varies slightly depending whether or not we're talking about melee or ranged weapons. I'm going to briefly go over those characteristics before we get into the individual weapon types. Starting with ranged weapons. Uh, Ranged weapons' first characteristic is range. This is going to be written out most of the time in the form of an inch, a a number, you know, a value in inches. So, a bolt rifle, uh, 36 inches, or is it 30 inches? The point is, it's a value in inches, which is going to indicate how far you can shoot away from that model's base. Or, if it's a vehicle, away from the, is it the mounting of the gun?
1: Yeah, that's where you measure from on vehicles. Okay.
0: The second stat or characteristic on a, we- a ranged weapon is its type. This is what we are go- the meat of what we're going to be digging into, so for now I'm going to skip over... This particular characteristic, as there is a whole sub discussion to it. After that, weapons have a strength characteristic. In the case of most melee weapons, the strength is added to the strength of the unit wielding or the model wielding it. But most ranged weapons simply have a strength value on them. If we're using the bolt rifle as an example again, it is strength five. The AP of a weapon is its armor pierce, that is something that appears both on ranged and melee weapons. This will essentially subtract from the save value, the save characteristic on a model, to reduce its ability to armor save um, potential hits, or rather potential wounds. And then finally, there's the damage characteristic, which indicates how many points of HP are lost if the weapon successfully wounds. Going back to melee weapons, like ranged weapons, they have damage, AP, strength, and a type, though 9 times out of 10, that type will simply say melee. But instead of range, as they're a melee weapon, they have initiative. If the initiative says user, you will reference the initiative value on the unit profile, but sometimes you will see a plus or negative number here, which will add or subtract from the initiative on the wielding model. As we discussed in the close combat, uh, or rather the fight phase section of the game, the order models strike in a iteration of combat, is done in a descending manner starting with the highest initiative and working down. So what are the different uh, types of, of weapons? Well, there's the melee which we you know is used to strike in close combat. And within that little subworld of melee there are a, a whole slew of, of different weapons which we can touch on but it is possible for somebody to strike without a melee weapon using an improvised melee weapon. This is a universal stat line that applies a minus one penalty to initiative, a minus one penalty to AP, and has the unwieldy ability, which is a minus one penalty to weapon skill. So if a model is not armed with a close combat melee weapon of some sort, they are striking uh, with some pretty substantial penalties. The fist of a human being, or Tower Eldar for that matter, does not do well against the armor of a superhuman soldier. Um, while we're on the po- section of melee, I will briefly mention that pistols are the only gun that are allowed to be fired in close combat. Um, they don't use weapon skill, they still use ballistic skill when this is done, though and they must target the unit they're engaged with. So you can't be in close combat firing at another unit outside of the combat with you. As far as the individual types of melee weapons that are in the game. These are going to vary codex to codex. But I do want to talk about the fact that there are some templates. And these templates are are going to help you understand what something is regardless of what family or codex it is so for example a sword there there are swords there are power swords there are force swords and there are even weapons out there uh, Well, chain swords there are even weapons out there that maybe don't have sword in the name but are maybe something called like uh, a flash saber or something to that effect these are all weapons that are are based off of the archetype of the sword and as such will all have the parry ability um and the parry Uh, ability is one which makes it harder for you to be hit in close combat. I'm not going to go through each one of these, but know that a mace is a weapon that has particularly poor initiative, but does more than, you know, a higher than average uh, damage. On the flip side, a flail is a weapon which, while having poor AP and poor initiative, gives you extra attacks as it, flail's about, but it is also unwieldy and imprecise. Again, this is going to stay true whether it's a like a medieval feudal flail, whether it's a power flail, or whether it's some sort of special sub faction specific weapon that is uh, a flail like uh, what is the one that the Craft World Eldar have? The I think the Web of Skulls is something that the um Dark Reapers can can get, but the, the point is, you're going to see a consistency in Millcammer across the game with these different types of close combat weapons. So, a spear is always going to be a weapon that is good to oppose a charge, a lance, on the other hand, is always one that is better on the charge. A mace gives you more strength at the cost of AP and initiative, while a flail gives you more attacks at the cost of AP and initiative. An axe is, slash war pick is something that is a good all rounder weapon. A sword is good at parrying, and twin weapons are something that give you an extra attack, not as many as a flail does, but also doesn't have the same severity of penalties that a flail does to initiative and AP. There are also other weapons in the game that are more rare, such as claws, fists, um, great weapons, scythes, staves, and the like. Again, we aren't going to get into every type of weapon here. That maybe could be another episode, or that could be a stand-in for reading the, you know, again, read the rules, know the rules, but. I guess all I'm trying to emphasize here is that there's a consistency across all codexes across the game. Um, But I think that's all I have for close combat. either of you have anything for close combat weapons?
1: Um, Some close combat weapons might look a little lackluster on stats compared to certain ranged weapons, because some of those ranged weapons are substantially like heavier you know but all pretty much all close combat weapons are going to be fairly um you know power power weapons have high ap and some of the some of the heavy the melee weapons have a little bit beefier damage to them but for the most part they look less lethal than ranged weapons but they're that's you're going to quickly find that that's not the case. So don't just just because you're looking at a stat line and see something see lower numbers don't be uh
0: yeah, I think part like, of that illusion is the fact that you add you're using the user strength which can mm-hmm. depending on what you are can be quite abysmal like a guardsman's strength is 2 but you know something like a power fist on a guardsman adds 5 to it that gets up to 7 that's not a shabby strength. Um, also, the uh, characters, in the same way that snipers can have their ballistic skill to target a specific model in a squad or a specific module on a vehicle, characters can make dual strikes that's something we'll touch on later. So a lot of times, the people with the best melee weapons in a squad or the only melee weapon in a squad is the sergeant, who is a character. And so you're often to be able... be a little bit more precise with your melee weapons and pick out special weapons members enemy characters or target more vulnerable parts of a vehicle and I think another part of what makes them sometimes look uh, or something to consider is their price they're often much cheaper than ranged weapons I think even most power weapons average at like 15 points uh, which is quite low compared to what ranged weapons can, I mean, some heavy ranged weapons can get into the hundreds of points. So that's going to play into it as well. Speaking of ranged weapons, uh, there are a few different types of those, and, and this is where things get rather complex. Ultimately, Warmer 40,000, I don't want to call it a shooting game. Again, you don't win by shooting your opponent off the board, and there are certain factions that don't fire that many guns, but it is a substantial part of the game. And it is what interacts mo- with terrain, line of sight, you know, range. A-, a lot of what brings value to this game, being a tabletop war game, is the fact that there is ranged combat. And knowing how to use the right ones in the right instances are going to be important. Uh, pistol weapons are probably the lightest variant of a ranged weapon. They're, you know, being able to be carried in one hand, uh, you're they're a little bit more agile and tactical in their use. It is the only ranged weapon, uh, we mentioned this earlier, that you can fire in close combat. Doing so, you you, uh, you you have to do that with a minus one to your ballistic skill, but at least you are able to do so. Um, you also, uh, mo- most models can only shoot one weapon a turn regardless of how many they have. The exception to this is pistols. You can fire as many pistols in your shooting phase as you have, though firing more than one causes you to do so with a minus one ballistic skill. But that does allow you to with a model that is wielding two or even more pistols kind of gunsling it for a little bit. In fact, that rule is called gunslinger.
1: It's also the coolest rule in the, in the <laughs> core rule book so uh,
0: One thing that firing ranged weapons can limit is whether or not if you fire if you fire a, a ranged weapon in your shooting phase, you cannot advance. Because if you go back to the movement phase, you either fire a ranged weapon or advanced. There is an asterisk next to that. And also, some weapons limit whether or not you can charge later in the charge phase. Uh, The pistol does not limit that. So if you fire a pistol, you can still charge in the charge phase. Uh, Assault weapons are... You think about these as like your submachine guns and... Any you know science fiction fantasy variant thereof. Uh, a, c- a couple key notes about it is that you can still charge later in the turn if it's fired, and you can even fire and advance with it. So you can move and then ad- you know let's say six inches, advance six inches, and then shoot with it. So it can help you get into range. Doing so subtracts one from the ballistic skill of the firing model. Uh, when that's done, but still, sometimes firing with a minus one ballistic skill is better than not firing at all because something wasn't in range. Mm-hmm. Also, when we get to the terrain section, um, yeah, we we'll get. Yeah, we'll, we won't. We won't touch on that now. The next type of weapon, and this is something that you're going to find on a lot of mainline uh, standard infantry guns, is the rapid fire. Rapid fire is interesting because at half range, so if it's a twenty four inch range gun excuse me <coughs> at half range, you are able to fire twice the amount of time with it. This is what is known as called firing rapid. <clears throat> now, there are a couple caveats so if the gun is a is a rapid one gun at twenty four inches you could fire. One, you could roll one die, fire one shot. At 12 inches, you could fire twice, rolling two die. You're doubling it because you're at half range. However, if you do that, if you fire rapid, you cannot charge. So even if you're at half range, there might be an instance where you elect not to um, in order to still be able to charge. Um, salvo weapons. Salvo weapons are kind of a step up from rapid, but not quite heavy. They are larger, more destructive rapid weapons. Salvo weapons have two numbers after their type, so it'll say, under the type section, it will say Salvo 25 as an example. If the model moves, it only gets to fire up to half of its range. So if it's a 36-inch gun, it can only fire 18 inches. Uh, and it has to fire with the first number, meaning if it was again a salvo two five weapon, it would only get to roll two dice. However, if a salvo weapon remains stationary, it can not only fire with the second number, so five dice, five attacks, but also can fire at its maximum range. You cannot charge with the salvo weapon, regardless of how far whether regardless of whether you fired at half range, moved, um, you just cannot charge and fire salvo weapons monstrous creatures and walkers may fire up to uh half the total rounding up of their heavy and salvo weapons and still charge so that's little asterisk next to the you can't fire salvo weapons and charge that is true for um smaller things but you know monstrous creatures and walkers have a little bit of a they're larger so what's what is big to a human is small to a demon prince uh, then we move into heavy weapons, which are kind of the largest size of man portable weapon in the game. Units that uh, move and fire a heavy weapon have to do so with a minus one penalty to ballistics kill, which really encourages you to not move when you're firing a heavy weapon, but sometimes you'll find that you need to. You cannot charge in, if you fire a heavy weapon in the same turn. And as I just mentioned, monstrous creatures and walkers are the exception to that. They can fire and charge uh, half of their heavy and salvo weapons in the same phase. The next uh, type of weapon is called uh, unwieldy. unwieldy we-, we, weapons... should maybe,
1: we should maybe take a slight um, pause there because this is sort of a break between... Um... The Modern the man-portable weapons oh, and uh, larger weapons that are exclusively um, equipped on vehicles.
0: Uh, well, vehicles, <clears> monsters, <throat> creatures, and gun carriages, even. Yeah, that's that's also I, true. Actually, I think the... Like anything in 40k, I think there's an exception for anything we all, ever say. I am not 100%, but I believe the conversion beamer that like a tech marine can get is actually an unwieldy weapon.
1: Oh, I did not know that.
0: But, you know, Tech Marine is a superhuman. He does have, like, servo arms and stuff that helps him carry it. And he is going to have issues when firing it. Right. Um, among those, non-vehicle and non-monstrous creature models cannot fire unwieldy weapons in the shooting phase if they moved. So we're not talking about a penalty to ballistic skill here if you move and shoot this. It's just you cannot move and shoot this unless you're a vehicle or a monstrous creature. Um, non-vehicles that fire an unwieldy weapon also can't charge. That's that's a given. And if you fire a non-vehicle and non-monstrous creatures that fire an unwieldy weapon can't fire any other weapon, that is somewhat true already in the sense that you cannot fire more than one weapon. Uh, but there are sometimes weapons out there that are bonus shot or bonus strike, which are... An ex- you know Their ability says, hey, you can fire me in addition to something else. Uh, if you're not a vehicle or a monstrous creature and you fire an unwieldy weapon, you, you can't. It, you can't even fire those bonus weapons. It takes all of your concentration, aim, etc. to be able to fire it. Uh, vehicle models, when they fire an unwieldy weapon, have to subtract one from their ballistic skill to fire it in the shooting phase if it moved in the preceding movement phase. And monstrous creature models have to subtract two from their ballistic skill if they moved in the preceding movement phase. So unwieldy weapons are kind of like heavy weapons for vehicles, is is one way to think about it. And something else to to keep in mind is that vehicles, and this is something that we'll touch on more later, but vehicles can move at, stay stationary, move at combat, or move at cruising speed. And if they move at cruising speed, all weapons suffer a minus two penalty. That penalty for moving at cruising speed is in addition to any penalty incurred by the the weapon type. An unwieldy weapon says if you move at all, it's a minus one. That means that a vehicle moving at cruising speed that wishes to fire an unwieldy weapon is automatically doing it at a minus three penalty. This makes moving and fire unwieldy weapons uh rather inaccurate especially if you're a guard tank that only has a ballistic skill of five that puts you at a minus that puts you at a two ballistic skill so you're only hitting on a one or a two on the roll of a d12 before you even applied any penalties that the enemy might have either due to special rules or terrain and a savvy opponent will at least have his most valuable units always positioned in either terrain or some other form of protection. So another minus one is not to be unexpected, meaning that a vehicle moving with an unwieldy weapon can quickly find itself or a guard vehicle rather can quickly find itself at one in ballistic skill, Um, which means you're probably not going to hit. That makes it really important to have guns, this large pre-positioned, or don't move them that fast. Don't move at cruising speed. Try and move little bits at a time with combat speed. Uh, Again, these nuances will make more sense once we cover the vehicle section, but it's one of the interesting aspects of the game where vehicles are slower, but definitely sturdier, and there's a risk versus reward of do I move my own vehicle to both better position it offensively and target the enemy's uh, weak side, and reinforce the, my good side, make sure it's facing the strongest enemy guns, but am I hampering the accuracy of my weapons in the process? Ordnance weapons are even larger than unwieldy weapons, and from that there's kind of a step up. Non-vehicle models just cannot fire uh, ordnance weapons in the shooting phase if they moved in the movement phase. That's not non-vehicle and non monstrous creature, which is what I've been saying a lot of before. So, ordnance weapons are so large that even monstrous creatures cannot fire and move them. Non-vehicles that fire ordnance weapons can't charge later. Non-vehicles that fire ordnance weapons cannot fire any other weapon. And vehicle models have to subtract two from their ballistic skill to fire it if they moved and shot. So, uh, again... Firing an ordnance weapon while moving at cruising speed would be a minus four to your ballistic skill before any terrain penalties. Um, quite inaccurate. That takes even a Space Marine's ballistic or a Craft World Eldar's ballistic skill of eight and cuts it in half right there. And if somebody was in a Density 2 forest, that ballistic skill of your remaining ballistic skill of four is going to go down to two. And if they happen to have like a night shield or something, All of a sudden, you have a space marine firing a ballistic skill 1. Which is, uh, again, you're probably not going to hit. That is the last of what I would call the gun weapon types. Uh, There are also grenade weapons in the game. Grenades, of course, are handheld explosive devices, which a unit can throw. And And I say a unit because grenades are... It, by default, only one model in a unit can throw them, even if all ten or five or whatever number of models in the unit have it. You can only do one a turn. Now, there are uh, several several other parts to this. If a non-vehicle throws a grenade, it cannot fire any other weapon. Vehicles with grenade launchers and projectors can fire each Uh, even if there's more than one. So if there's a unit with five grenade launchers, you can shoot five grenades out of those launchers. But if there are infantry with five grenades, they can only throw a single grenade. Only one model can use a grenade when it shoots. I've touched on that. Grenades only scatter a single D12. That is instead of 2D8. So grenades do not scatter as far as... Other blast weapons, and of course, this is only if the grenade is a blast weapon. A lot of grenades are, not every grenade is. Um, grenades can be thrown at targets that are outside of line of sight if they're still in range. So, if there is, let's say, a you know a wall between two models, but not a, but not a ceiling, you could throw the grenade over that wall. Um, you could also uh, essentially bounce it around a corner through a door. So, grenades can be used at models that are out of line of sight, but still in range. And finally, grenades can be used as a a melee weapon. So a single model, per infantry model, per unit in the fight phase, can use a grenade as an unwieldy, which would provide a minus one weapon skill uh, weapon, and if it deals damage in this way, it deals one point more than listed. So this is a way that you can represent putting grenades, um, you, you know, attacking vehicles with it. And in fact, if a character does it, they could dual strike doing it and choose where to put it. And so this is where you can, within the rule set, take a grenade and shove it down a uh, exhaust pipe or the like. Also, when we get to the terrain section, you'll find that grenades have a a, a series of interesting interactions with certain types of terrain. You can chuck them inside of buildings if there are viewports. You can throw them up on battlements and a, a few other things. So it's a nice little utility tool that a lot of units in the game have. Easy to forget you have it and not use it, but a, a very veteran player will know how and when to use his grenades effectively. Caleb isn't with us uh, this episode, but he is um, an individual who is rather good at using them. Another type of weapon, missiles. Missiles are most often going to be found on aircraft. And when I say missiles, this does not include most missile launchers. These are like self-propelled missiles that would be strapped off into a missile rack. Uh, They are... They follow the same rules as heavy weapons. And there are also things in the game called ordnance missiles, which follow the same rules as ordnance weapons. So you say, Austin, if they act like heavier ordnance weapons, what's the difference? Well, a model can only ever fire one missile per turn, even if they had four or six of them. Um, But missiles, regardless of how they're positioned on the model, are never fixed. So even if they look like they're facing a single direction, they can always fire at a 45 degree angle in front of them. This is because missiles are going to have some form of a self-guided system in them. What that represents in 40k, whether it's a machine spirit or maybe even an actual demon possessing the missile, who knows? The lore is up to, well, you and GW, but, um, yes, that, so missiles have a, they're for the most part function like heavy and ordnance, but you can only ever fire one a turn, have a 45 degree arc. And also, most missiles in the game, while this isn't inherent to the missile type, most missiles in the game have the one-use-only rule, meaning that if an aircraft is modeled with four missiles, it has four missiles, it can only fire one a turn, and it can only do so for four turns before it would run out of missiles. When we go to the aircraft section, you can find out how you can resupply that aircraft to regain those, but the point is they are often a limited amount of shots. Bombs. Are something that you're. Mm, I can't think of an example of one being on anything other than aircraft. Can any of you? Uh, unless you wanted to include a melt bomb. Uh it's true. It does have bomb in the name, but it is not a bomb type. Yeah. Uh, bomb type vehicles are always fired out the the rear facing by default of a web of a thing. So you often need the aircraft to fly directly over something um the bomb if the bomb uses a blast template which they often do hits on a vehicle are resolved against the facing that the center of the blast is located in also bombs can be dropped from high altitude again this is something that will be covered better in the aircraft section but aircraft can fly at high altitude which puts them out of the range of AA guns, um, and they can be dropped. But when this is done, when the bomb is dropped from high altitude, it scatters an additional d12. At that point, it is scattering uh, what three d12, which can mean it can go up to three feet on the map, which is uh, that 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 that's pretty far. It could end up almost anywhere sometimes. That is all of the ranged weapon types, though there are a few important subtypes. I alluded to sniper weapons earlier on. Sniper weapons are a subtype that when a model with a sniper weapon is shooting, it can fire as normal, or it can elect to fire a sniper shot. When you fire a sniper shot, it fires at half of its ballistic skill value, um, rounding up, And you're like, well, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to penalize myself like that? Well, this allows you to target either a single model or a single vehicle module rather than um, the unit as a whole. You could use this to pick out characters, special weapons, or hit a weak spot on a vehicle. And not even hero points, which is something we'll talk about later when we talk about characters, can save you from a sniper shot. Blast weapons... Uh, A lot of weapons in the game, missiles, grenades, and the like, are blast weapons. Blast weapons are ones which scatter. So they do not roll to hit as per normal. In fact, I need to get a drink. Would somebody else be able to explain to the audience how blast weapons work?
1: Yeah, so we touched on blast weapons in the section on the shooting phase that we did in the last podcast. But if you recall, blast weapons, um, rather than selecting a target and then rolling dice to see how many hits you get, you will select a target and then center a a marker, uh, which is going to be a disc either... Uh, I think it's... I believe four and then the largest six. Yeah, yeah. four and six inches.
0: Which again is uh, larger than... Uh, Blast Markers Games Workshop is made for previous editions of the game. Um, In short, we scaled them up to respond to the base size creep that has occurred.
1: So you'll center a marker over top of a model in the unit that you're firing at. And then you will roll dice to see how far that that marker is going to scatter away from the unit that you're targeting and you're also going to roll a die to see which direction it goes and that die corresponds to the numbered sides of the blast marker there are 20 sides on a blast marker so you roll a d20 and that tells you which direction that you need to measure in since it's a flat side you'll have um, a 90 degree angle to put your tape measure at to the marker so you're always going to get the right direction for your scatter And then you just move it the number of inches that you rolled minus the firing unit's ballistic skill. And then wherever the marker ends up, um, you take a look at what's under it. And anything underneath it suffers a hit. And at that point, um, rolls to save and wound are conducted as they normally would be for any other weapon type. And I... uh... I want to mention,
0: you you may have already noticed that he said whatever is underneath of it gets hit. This includes your own units if it happens to be an unfortunate roll for you. (laughs) That's a great point. Um, Keep in
1: mind that a lot of grenades, which um, have a pretty short range, are usually 6 or 8 inches, are usually blast weapons, meaning that you can easily scatter 7 inches on any given um, blast roll. And if your range is six inches, that puts the unit that threw the grenade solidly inside the distance of the grenade if it scatters the wrong direction.
0: I think the average grenade range is eight inches when being thrown, and then yeah, you're rolling a, a D twelve, subtracting your ballistic skill. Average ballistic skill is six, um, so That's... you're like, Yeah, it's it, especially when you're talking about a marker being four inches in diameter, so you have two inches wide. So assuming that you, you only have about analyzed. four inches of wiggle room, meaning if you mess up by four degrees, it, 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 you you are probably being hit by your own grenade, which, um, you know, that's bad.
1: He who dares wins. Or in this case, dies.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. That can be the same thing in certain okay. cultures. Sure.
0: When you're firing a blast weapon from a vehicle, you draw a like a, an imaginary plane perpendicular to the barrel that's firing it. Uh, and so when it scatters, the center of the blast weapon's template may not scatter back behind this plane. This prevents something like a tank destroyer firing a shot from somehow magically hitting an area like off behind and to the right of it. So that's uh, that's a little feature built in to prevent silly situations from arising. And much like other things in the game, if you have multiple blasts, you resolve all of one shot with the same weapon if you have more than one shot of a blast weapon. You resolve one template all the way through and then do it for the next one and so on until you've resolved them all. Barrage weapons are always going to be blast weapons. So you will never see something that has the barrage ability and not have the blast ability. Barrage weapons are weapons which not only are firing at an area rather than targeting a unit, and they still use the scatter system, but are also firing indirectly. Mortars, artillery, and the like. Um, Because of this, they scatter 2d10 rather than the standard of 2d8. So they scatter further uh, if they're being fired indirectly, because they are. Some barrage weapons have the option to be fired directly uh, in front of you. Some do not. And as such, they're often scattering more. And the one of the benefits here, though, is they do not need line of sight. So you can have a giant, uh, you know, you could you could have a, a ruin between you and an opponent, and your artillery piece can fire over it and target things in his back line though with the scattering how accurate that is who knows uh hits on a vehicle are never resolved against the facing that the center or sorry are are resolved against the facing that the center of the blast is located in because unlike a normal blast marker which while it scatters about on the table, it's still coming from a direct the direction of the firing model. The barrage weapon, if you think about it, you know, lore wise, it is coming from above the target model because it is being lobbed at it. Barrage weapons automatically pin enemies that they hit. No, this is regardless of whether or not they take wounds or damage from the weapon. Would sometimes make weapons like mortars beautiful as just something to pin an enemy. You can have the scariest heavy infantry unit in the game, and if it's pinned and not allowed to move towards you, or even towards the objective, because by moving towards the objective they're moving towards you, you have neutralized that expensive heavy infantry unit for a turn. Now, in order to be able to allocate a hit to a model with a barrage weapon, you do have to be able to draw a line of sight, not from the firing model, but from the center of the blast template. So, if it if there is a wall and it scatters across the wall, so that their wall is now between the center of the blast template and the uh, uh, you know the the target unit, even if it's even if the blast template is still over that unit, part of that unit. It doesn't hit them. It's like it landed on the other side of that wall and exploded, and so the radius is not able to reach the target unit. Knowing how to use barrage weapons is uh, another one of those things that it, it's kind of they're kind of like big grenades in that way. That they sometimes look lackluster, but when you know how to utilize them, in particular, to pin your opponent or target things your opponent tried to hide and keep you from seeing. Uh, there's a lot of strategy there it can be a lot of fun template weapons uh, which include beam and scour weapons use and this is something else we talked about in the first part as well but the teardrop shaped templates where you place it down at the base of the model and everything under it is hit automatically beam weapons function similarly except they use the width of a tape measure as the template itself so rather than a teardrop shape that starts out small doesn't go very far only goes eight inches but kind of clumps up towards the end this has a consistent width that goes often a little bit further scour weapons are ones where you scatter two points you pick two spots on the table you scatter them you then draw a line between them and anything between those two points are hit. So it's kind of like drawing a, a beam across that section. There are very few scour weapons in the game. Um, there are a few more beam weapons in the game, but still not many. There are a lot of template weapons in the game. Every faction has at least access to one. Now, a couple things that template weapons offer you uh, tactically is they are great at c- clearing out horde units because you automatically hit a bunch of units, and they often have low AP, but if it's a horde unit without a lot of armor, that doesn't matter anyway. Also, when it gets to the terrain section, you can use template weapons to fire into bunkers, so they're great at clearing out bunkers. Also, template weapons ignore um, like the density of terrain, I believe, when you are firing into them they don't. They essentially don't care about ballistic skill. Even blast weapons care about ballistic skill because when you scatter, you subtract from the result, the, the number of your scatter die. If I roll a six and it says scatter, you know, scatter six inches this direction, but my ballistic skill is five, I subtract five from the six and I only end up going one inch in that direction. So ballistic skill still matters for blast weapons, albeit in a different way than normal ballistic skill absolutely does not matter for template weapons, which makes them uh, wonderful for dealing with units in terrain. Also, template weapons have the wall of death special rule which allow you to right before someone charges you, uh, spray a last second of uh, like a last second overwatch. and this is automatic. this always happens you do not have to set the unit to overwatch um, which with a small template gives you D six automatic hits. And with a large template gives you D 10 automatic hits. So they are great at repelling charges.
1: The, the reason it's dice and not using the actual template is because it's before the charging unit is moved to you and they might be outside of the templates, actual range. Perfect, if, perfect like the, the models physically might be
0: correct. Right. Great point. I, uh, I also wanted to interject just a little bit when, uh, austin was talking about the uh the beam using the width
1: of a tape measure note to anyone that may want to use those that that is the width of a standard tape measure which i believe is about one inch in width so any of those people that like to use the like the stanley fat axe measures that um, we don't allow for that type of gaming system
0: Tape, tape measuring to advantage yes Someone pulls out some jumbo, like, three-inch-wide tape measure. Yeah, no, there is a... I don't know if the core rules call out an exact width. That is actually probably something that if they don't, we should specify. I, I, I don't know if the... I know the core rules don't. I don't know if the scour special rule does. That's a failing on my part, that I don't know that. I think it calls out an exact width, but... That's uh that's part of what playtesting is about, right? We've been in the alpha test for a year. We're moving into the beta test and it is things like that that we catch as we play and as we talk about it. Even on the podcast. Even on the podcast. Sometimes you're going to have uh oh, template weapons can never hit an aircraft that's um unless it's acting as a skimmer and template X weapons are ones where they can fire uh, before before you shoot the template, before you place it, rather than placing it in base contact with the firing model you can measure out the indicated inches the value of X before placing it so that allows you to get a little bit more range out of it. Now I said the ballistic skill doesn't matter when you're firing templates. And that is true for all but one instance. If there is a damaged module on a vehicle, so if you had a heavy flamer on the front of a guard vehicle and it is damaged, it will, rather than uh, penalizing the ballistic skill, because again it doesn't care about it, um, it kind of reduces the range of that weapon. So the rather than firing the full eight inches of the template, it reduces the range of it by two inches. So a damaged heavy flamer on the front of a guard vehicle will only fire the last six inches of the template, and a double damaged one will only fire the last four inches of a of a template. Um, And beam and scour weapons suffer similar penalties. To that end, that those are all of the weapon types and subtypes, from the close combat ones to the myriad of gun, missile, grenade, bomb, and of course the subtypes of sniper, blast barrage, scour, template, etc. There, there are a lot of them, but the beauty of it is, it they become second nature when you play and it allows for a lot of consistency across the factions when knowing how weapons work and operate they they almost operate in that sense like special rules but ones that are so common they're not even worth being universal special rules they're worth being baked into the core of the game itself this is something that most editions if not every edition of Worm 40,000, is done to some capacity um I, I think there are a few more in ours uh, I know that Ordnance is something that used to exist. We kind of went away with 8th edition. We brought it back. I don't think Unwieldy has ever existed as a, as a ranged weapon type. And that's kind of a step between Heavy and Ordnance. Um, as well as the subdivision of missiles, bombs, and, and etc. But yeah, that, that, those are the weapon types in Milkhammer. Does anyone have uh, any observations before we move on?
1: Yeah, so I just want to point out <clears throat> the the majority of these weapon types, what they're doing is interacting with movement. So it's, it's sort of tying the shooting phase and the movement phase together. So your weapon type really is... What it's doing is it's telling you how mobile a unit is while it can still act defensively that turn. Obviously, melee is a bit of an exception to that, but that has the added caveat of you have to charge um, if you're if you're using a melee weapon. And if you don't make that charge, your threat range is, is zero, right? You're not doing anything that turn. So when you are planning out your turn, while you're moving, you need to think about how you want these units to act offensively later on in the turn. And that's the main thing that weapon types will inform you how to do um there are all sorts of special rules and little particular details you can get caught up in but basically when you're when you're looking at a weapon and analyzing it and deciding if you want this one or another one while you're building your list what it's really telling you is how mobile is this unit or weapon that's
0: a that's a Um, great point because when you're sitting there and building you know a group of intercessors they have what are they assault bolt rifles bolt rifles and Stalker bolt rifles and they have very similar stat lines with the Stalker bolt rifle, the heavier of the one, doing more damage um, but there's a loss of mobility as you creep up that scale. The assault bolt rifle, as the name suggests, is an assault weapon <clears throat> so you can not only uh, shoot it and charge without any worry but you can also advance. You can fire in advance with it. The bolt rifle on the other hand, you could still fire and charge with it, but you can't fire rapid with it, which means you're firing with substantially less shots at like a at like a 15-inch range, at a half range. And you cannot advance with it at all, so you can see how the unit is becoming slightly less mobile, but it does have a little bit more range, which gives it a little bit more of a stationary threat range. Then you move to the Stalker bolt rifle, those are heavy, which means... You're gonna if you even move, not advance, not charge, which are things you can't do and fire it. But if you even move normally, you're looking at penalties to your to your shooting. But it has the most range and the most damage of the three. So that that's a great point. You're looking at kind of a spectrum here of how much firepower do I want to bring to bear, but at what penalty to my maneuverability. And again, it's in a game where the objectives are how you win and to get them, you got to get there, and and maneuvering is very important, getting around the sides of vehicles, getting into and up complex ruins, um, going into underground passageways, maneuvering through multi-part buildings, fighting through basement catacombs, um, you know, dodging from piece of forest terrain to forest terrain, these are all things that different units are going to excel at differently, and making sure you have an all-comers list that can handle all situations is is paramount. And overloading too much on one weapon type is probably a good way to have a bad game. You need to have a, a diversity. Uh, so I, I know in the guard list I am currently working on, I have two detachments, one of which uses a penal... The, the lore behind them is that they are a penal legion, or sorry, a penal... Uh, regiment which uh, come from a a frozen tundra world so they all have bright orange like prisoner orange um, you know Russian fur coats aesthetically they're armed with assault weapons and the other detachment I have kind of basing them off of like a Napoleonic army have heavy weapons so I kind of have two sides of that coin the plan it may not always work out, but the plan is to sit back in my deployment zone with the Napoleonic-style forces, with the heavy weapons that reach further, do more damage. Throw the other ones with the assault weapons and transports, get them up in the enemy, and throw them at my enemy's face. And because hey, they're just prisoners, I'm not concerned if they die. And I have commissars there to make sure they don't run. So that that you know, trying to strike that balance. Uh, in the weapon types is key to be flexible. And if I overload it on too much of one weapon type or the other, I might find myself in a situation where if I had all of the, you know, everyone in that Napoleonic style, uh, it would be a rather static army, which might mean that I do a lot of damage on turn one and two shooting at my opponent, but watch in horror as they slowly claim all the objectives and then win the game.
1: Um, the only other thing I would say about weapon types is being aware of what weapon types your enemy uses for their purposes also gives you a good idea of how to engage them. So just as an example, the most, probably the most common weapon type for infantry to have, um, at least for like troops and, and mainline units, is uh, rapid fire. So when you're fighting somebody with a lot of rapid fire guns, or just you know, a lot of infantry, because that's pretty much the same thing, you don't just have to be aware of their range. You know, that's the their the actual range of the gun is their threat range, but you have to be aware of double tap range. You know, when are they going to fire rapid? Because they, suddenly the damage they're doing to you is it is, literally has, doubles. It literally doubles it is it is just multiplied by two so um and that sort of that sort of analysis kind of exists for every weapon um so when you're fighting somebody with heavy weapons do you try and engage in such a way where they have to move if they want to shoot at you if you're fighting somebody with assault weapons um are you going to close the distance as they close the distance because you know half of their advantage is I can move and shoot. Well, if you're in melee with me, move and shoot all you want. Um, you're you're dead. I hacked you to death, you know. So there's a, an advantage to knowing how you want to use your weapons going into the game. And there's an advantage to reacting to how your opponent is using them. So it's a very, it, I don't want to say it's a, it's a, a simple thing to learn, but it's one of the things that you get used to using very quickly once you start playing.
0: Mm-hmm. Alright. Those are the weapon types of Milkhammer. And after a short pause, we will move into characters. <laughs>
1: Going to briefly discuss um, characters and their role in your army and on the battlefield. So, characters come in two varieties: there are independent characters and characters. Characters are something that nearly every squad, every uh, non-vehicle squad, or uh, non-vehicle and non monstrous creature squad in the game is going to have in them. They are the unit leader, they're the sergeant and a guard squad, and so on and so forth. Characters typically have a higher leadership than the rest of their unit, and they typically have, um, one more HP and possibly another attack over the rest of their squad mates. Independent characters, you don't technically have to have in your army, but they are uh, single man units that are typically in the elite HQ slots in most codexes, and independent characters generally follow the same themes as characters. They have high leadership, they have uh, more HP than most other units, and they have more attacks than most other units. And typically, independent characters will have additional expertise as well,
0: and weapon skill and ballistic skill.
1: That's also true. And, um,
0: and often are the ones with a psychic skill, if if at all.
1: Yeah, especially if you get into Codexes. Well, Guard would be a bad example okay. because uh, word veins and tigers exist, but. Better psychers are typically characters, as characters in general are typically better versions of the rest of the infantry in the codex. <clears throat> and um, they often have specialized roles in the codex, which um, is going to be determined by the rules on their unique sheet. But there are a few general things that tie independent characters together. And for one, uh, let's take a look at the word independent. So these. Characters are purchased as single-man units in an army list, and they can be operated that way on the battlefield. But independent characters can also join other units. And And when they do so...
0: nine times out of 100, you should.
1: Yes, there are many good reasons why you should do that. Um, when they do so, they become the leader of that unit. So when moving the unit in the future, you need to keep in uh, mind the cohesion distance that the unit needs to maintain around their leader. And a, fin- a few of the reasons you would add a independent character into a, another squad is, uh, one, it puts them in the network. So any of their networked command abilities that that independent character might have Are conferred to the unit. Uh, Second, independent characters uh, usually have some pretty handy utility abilities that aren't necessarily network command abilities that are transferred either to the unit or aren't transferred, but the unit can be benefited by. Right. To put that in,
0: like a little practical example here, a chaplain can confer to anyone within network command, which. At a minimum, you you know, 12 inches is pretty standard for a network command range, not to get into that here. But that means a chaplain 12 inches away from a friendly Space Marine unit is able to let it re-roll hit rolls of 12 in melee. However, the chaplain also has an additional rule that a model within two or three, a unit within two or three inches of it, I, I believe it's two inches actually, which is you're in the unit at that point, it is able to um, remove behavior tokens from it. So the chaplain both has an ability that can affect all units in network command, which he could do. You're automatically a network command when you join someone, but he also could affect someone half the board away. But he also has an ability that he has to be there, he has to be present for, he has to be in the unit. So there are added benefits a lot of times to having the character in the squad, that, that's just a, just to a jump on with a practical example there. Mm-hmm.
1: And keep in mind that if a character isn't in a squad and somebody uh, chooses to target him as uh, the target of a shooting attack, um, there's only one model in that unit to allocate hits to. So every every hit they get is going on the character. If they are part of a squad, um, use the as the defender get to allocate those hits and you do have to do it evenly. But that means that there are a lot of bodies that an opponent might have to chew through before they can start damaging your valuable character.
0: And there's a way to skip characters, which we'll get to in a bit, but, but yes, that means that, you know, if, if you have a character not attached to a unit, it's a good way to lose a very expensive bottle. My yeah,
1: There needs to be a reason for you to do yeah,
0: that. Yeah, my Space Marine Librarian has, uh, I believe, 5 HP, which is a decent amount, but that's still enough that a single Laz Cannon could kill him, right? Well, he is worth almost 500 points by the time I'm done kidding him out. That is the cost of a lot of baseline infantry units in the game. But whereas a single las Cannon could only kill even a single guardsman one out of ten guys it could which it could take a whole 500 almost 500 point chunk out of my list if it was hitting the you know the librarian out in the open on his own um that would require some fortunate rolling as far as maximizing damage but it is possible so it's a good way to lose a lot of points very quickly if your characters aren't in squads uh one notable exception is monstrous creature characters Like uh, a demon prince or a greater demon. Those are things that will have the character rule. um, But uh, well, I guess they don't even have the independent character rule to join squads. They're just a big character. And half of their point is to sometimes even be a bullet magnet. Since they have more toughness. But if we're talking about infantry level characters or even small beast characters or cavalry characters... Put them in a squad. You're going to have a better time.
1: So next up, we're going to talk about dueling. And dueling is something that any character can do, independent or not. And it's something that some characters particularly excel at. Some characters are are natural duelists and will want to be in melee combat a lot. Dueling essentially is uh, melee sniping would be a good shorthand for it. So when when a character is in close combat and attacking, they can choose to perform a dual attack rather than a normal close combat attack, and the uh, the the difference between the two is that um they will either allocate their hits towards a single model of their choosing rather than the opponent's or a single vehicle, module, or monstrous creature characteristic rather than rolling to determine what you hit. And the trade-off for getting to do that as the attacker is that you attack with half of your weapon skill. So that can be pretty substantial, um, but characters with naturally high weapon skills or with weapons that are particularly good at dual striking, um, it's often going to be worth it to you as an attacker to do that. And okay. keep in mind that's not just independent characters. Um, if you have a um, a sergeant with a, I think, do thunderhammers prevent you from doing it, or is it?
0: Yeah, so there are some weapons. That was what I was gonna say is there are some oh. weapons that prevent you from dual striking because of their cumbersome nature. But uh, actually, a thunderhammer and a power fist are a great example. Some editions of the game have had them come out pretty similar. As far as their use of application, big, slow, cumbersome thing that does a lot of damage to vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. In mill there's a pretty distinct role between them. Like, let's say you have a a, a sergeant with a thunder hammer and a sergeant with a power fist, or, or even a captain with the, you know, comparing and contrasting them too. The thunder hammer can't dual strike. So while it does a lot of damage... Uh, enough to destroy modules on a vehicle like just outright destroy a tread or break an engine or bust up a gun you can't choose what you're hitting with it you roll and you hit something in melee uh, but you can't control what it is it's left up to the fate of a die but what you do hit you're destroying the power fist on the other hand does a little bit less damage it does three damage not only is that more consistent it's a consistent three damage but it also uh, doesn't have the limitation of not being able to dual strike. Now three damage is notably right below the threshold that prevents you from destroying modules on a vehicle, which means a power fist is going to not be able to outright destroy the treads on a, on a vehicle. It can come close, it can hurt it a lot, but it can't utterly obliterate a tread or an engine like a power like a thunderhammer can. But what you can do, is choose to directly target the HP, the core of the vehicle, with that power fist. And with a few quick strikes from a power fist, just destroy the vehicle outright. So they're kind of two different... It's like a... Like a a precision... It's not a quantity versus quality approach when you compare those two weapons. It's like a precision versus brutality sort of spectrum. And the more brutal you are the less precise you are but that leads to both these weapons being very different from one another and having very um different applications or or ways to use them but towards the same end goal of this weapon good for destroying vehicle or big monster right but in in very different ways and in ways that different players and different characters are going to favor
1: and half the fun of having a character that um, you've you've made yourself is getting to pick which weapons and how they dual strike and creating their personality, both through the hobby and through the game. Um, so one other thing before we get to uh, hero points that I want to talk about is um, uh, a rule called uh, requiring aid, which is... It, it's called,
0: uh, I require aid!
1: Oh, yeah, you got to do the voice. Anytime you have you to do to the voice. There's
0: it. air quotes around it and an exclamation point. So I guess, it's, right. I guess it's less It's less that and it's more of a cry for help. But yeah, no. It's like, I require aid!
1: If anybody's played um, Eternal Crusade, um, if your character's damaged, there's a voice line that says,
0: I need healing.
1: And you have to do that if you play Chaos. Otherwise, you can't use the rule.
0: I think in Dawn of War there's a similar line where if somebody gets hurt they're like apothecary I require it might be I require aid or I need healing it's it's very similar um, mm-hmm. it's possible that that it's possible that that it's literally I require apothecary I require aid and that that's where that came from in, in my subconscious while writing <laughs> the rule
1: so what you're saying is we should replace the text of the rule with just every possible variation on asking for help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or we should rename every rule after a quote from a 40k video game
1: uh, we should put all of our time in. no okay so uh, I require aid is a way for your characters to um, regain hit points after they've taken damage during the course of a battle and typically the way you'll do that for most models is you'll have a medic character that is going to heal them but characters um, their, their squad mates will willingly help them out and uh, stop doing mission-related to tasks to help their leader.
0: Because they're um, special.
1: Because they're very special. So if you want to use this rule, um, at the start of a unit's movement phase, they can, instead of doing any other action on their turn, uh, no shooting, no movement, nothing whatsoever, um, can make an aid test to uh, aid the character in their squad. And an aid test test is an expertise test. So keep in mind that's going to be low unless there is, uh, you know, maybe another character in the squad that is boosting the expertise. Because he uses
0: the highest in the unit, but excluding the model that the aid is being given to. So if it's a squad of guardsmen giving aid to their sergeant, he is... um, I mean, actually, even if he was able to participate, their expertise is, what, three? In fact, three is a very common expertise. It is the average expertise. So you're looking at a three down on a, D, on a D12 to be able to uh, restore that hit point, and it's at the cost of doing nothing else on your turn. So right. there there's a very slim chance that a... Because, again, these aren't trained professionals. These aren't the medic models, the apothecaries... Uh, in the game, or, or even the homunculi doing dark surgeries uh, on someone to repair them. These are just good old boys ripping off their sleeve and trying to patch up their sergeant that, you know, was like a father figure to them. So it's uh, it's there, it's an option in case you need really need to keep that character alive for some reason, but there is a substantial cost to it. Or
1: if the unit just has nothing better to do, if they're in a place where they're not in danger anymore, but they also might not achieve much if they shot something.
0: It also requires the model to still be alive, but just wounded. Um, Or I say alive, but, you know, not have been, not hit zero hit points. Whereas often models like apothecaries can actually restore squad members to the squad. So not only can they heal more than just characters, but uh, a medic can, you know take somebody who has, quote, been removed as a casualty and re-add them to the board. Because keep in mind, lore wise being removed as a casualty doesn't always mean you're dead, it just means you're out of action. You have been wounded to the capacity, you are no longer a functional soldier.
1: Um, and that segues nicely into hero points. There are several abilities... Um... That you can do with hero points, and uh, several of them have to do with keeping your heroes in the fight a little bit longer. Um, so hero points can be spent. I should I should back up. Hero points are um, he, are are points that you can spend on abilities um, for any character in your army, independent or otherwise. And typically, you'll get ten of these um, for your army. And, um, and like you, an
0: you... average-sized game, like a 20,000-point 20, 20, game, 10 is pretty standard. Right. Missions... Point values or missions may adjust yeah, that. Yeah, the things can adjust that, but for the purposes of today's discussion, assume that you have 10. Mm-hmm.
1: And there are several different abilities you can spend these hero points on. Um, the first thing is that you can be uh, skipped in the Allocate hit step of uh shooting or close combat so typically um when allocating hits you need to do so in sort of a round robin even fashion where each model in the unit takes each eligible model in the unit will take a hit Um, if you spend a hero point you can elect to uh basically you pretend that that character isn't there for that particular round of allocating hits until you've allocated one to each model excluding that character and then you'll do the thing again
0: if ruben hits my intercessors with my librarian or forget the librarian intercessors and the sergeants and the squad and he gets um seven hits with splinter weapons i can sit there and uh i have to i'm the one that decides where those hits are allocated this goes back to the shooting phase There is the caveat though that I have to apply the damage. I have to allocate first to any wounded models. So let's assume one of the intercessors took damage on a prior turn. I assigned one of the seven to him. Then I assigned to the next uh, three intercessors in the squad who are at full health, but are you know the remaining guys who aren't the sergeant. Well, that takes up another three of the seven shots. So that's four of the seven used. I still have three left to allocate, and at this point I've allocated one to every model except the sergeant. So rules is written, written according to the rules of allocation in the shooting phase. I would have to allocate, and by the way, this is true for allocation in close combat as well. I would have to allocate that next hit to the sergeant, at which point every model has been allocated one hit, and I, with the remaining two, I can allocate them. Uh, it kind of starts the process over. However, uh, I don't want it on my sergeant. I paid for a rather expensive Thunder Hammer upgrade on my sergeant, and he has an Auspex, and there's some points in there. So I use one of my 10 hero points to skip him in the allocation. So after allocating to the Wounded Intercessor and then the other three Healthy Intercessors, rather than allocating that fifth hit to the sergeant, I restart the process and allocate it again to the Wounded Intercessor. And then the next few I assign to the two of the three healthy ones. At that point, all seven of the hits have been allocated to the four intercessors in the unit rather than, and none have been allocated to the sergeant. I'll then take armor saves on them, but this way I know, pass or fail, regardless of the results of the armor saves, my sergeant is not taking damage. That valuable investment is not hurt. But, but, two little quick caveats here. You can only do that ten times per game. So if you if I do it on my sergeant, and if I do it too many times on him, I can't do it for my chaplain or my librarian later. And also, you can't do this if you're dual struck or sniper shot. So that is the value of dual striking and sniper shot shooting is that they can really target a character and be like, no, 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 I'm hurting you.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So the the next ability uh, is also sort of a defensive one for your characters, and that is an Ignore's Wound roll. And it might sound like a save, or it might sound like a feel-no-pain, but there is a distinct difference here, and we'll go over it. Um, So an Ignore's Wound roll costs a hero point to ignore one wound that a character has suffered. And that is specifically a successful wound. So the opponent has... Um, rolled to hit, hit you, you've rolled to save, failed to save, and then they've rolled to wound and wounded you. Now, you could take the damage, whatever the damage characteristic of the weapon they're striking with is, or you could make an Ignore's Wound roll, which is just a 3-down roll on a d12. Uh, and on a 3-down, the wound is discarded. You don't take any of the damage whatsoever. Um, and on a 4-up, it's resolved as normal. And that makes it different from a save in that they need to roll to hit you first. So you've sort of got some more information. And it's not quite a feel-no-pain in that you're not doing it on a damage-by-damage basis. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to lose some hit points of worth of damage if it's got more than one.
0: Yeah, it's Um, particularly valuable against multi-damage weapons in the sense that, let's say you have a feel-no-pain on a three-down. Uh, and a last cannon hits you it rolls its d6 damage and let's let's say it gets three or four damage let's say it gets four damage if you wait and use your feel no pain against it you have to do four separate feel no pain rules to avoid each instance of damage caused the ignores wound roll if it's successful before then on a three down you've avoided all four points of damage right, right. and there's but, no to continue reason Austin's you can't example
1: do, sorry go ahead. Sorry, well to, to 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 continue the example. Um if you have four chances at a 3 down, statistically you get one of those on a D12, right? So you're you're taking 3 damage but you're not taking one of them. And you could compare that to one chance at a 3 down, which statistically you're not going to get, but if you do, you don't take any of those damage. So it's a little gambly, but if you're doing it against a, a high-value wound, you can make your money back.
0: Also, if we're, talk- we're talking about it almost as if it's an either-or, but it's not. You can, once you're hit, take your saves. If you fail the saves, once a character is wounded, he can spend a hero point to do a wound avoidance roll. And if that two fails and the damage is rolled against him, if he has a feel-no-pain, he can take feel-no-pains against it. So a character might have three ways to avoid taking hits. Um, I say might because most units in the game don't have a feel-no-pain and only heroes can do wound avoidance. And even then, um, you have to have the hero points to do it. Right. Right.
1: And lastly... Um the character can attempt to rally a unit that is suffering from a behavior token that was given to them by the um, behavior table Um, and this is done by spinning a point and um, any unit within a number of inches equal to that character's leadership can be targeted (laughs) to try and rally and then you will roll a D12 and try and get half of that character's leadership value um, rounding up as as your result on the D12. And if you do, the token is removed. If you don't, the token remains and you'll continue to uh, behave with that unit as the token describes. And note that this is kind of an inconsistent way to get rid of behavior tokens. Um If you're trying to reliably get rid of tokens, uh, you need to have a morale officer in your army. And a lot of codexes have morale officers or the equivalent of them. But if you are uh, in a pinch, you don't have one of those in your army, or you don't have one of them close enough to a unit that is uh, suffering from a behavior token, this is how you do it. This is uh, sort of a band-aid approach. Um, and then lastly, some heroes may have specific rules on their data sheet um, that will allow them to spend hero points, or some missions may give all heroes um, the ability to spend hero points on a certain ability. Um, yeah. But those three are the core uh, spins that you can use hero points for.
0: Yep, and to recap those, it's to be skipped an allocation, to make a wound, uh, ignores wound roll, or to attempt to rally a unit, I think you'll find that mostly, mo- mostly using it to skip allocation uh, and wounds, ignoring wound rolls is is what you'll see most of. A, uh, but but sometimes you have a unit that's running that you just need to rally, and and sometimes you can have a sergeant pull that off in a pinch, you know. Um, but yeah, that those are that's the those are the ins and outs of the characters they function like other units other you know other models in the game but they're special and uh, that's where a lot of the fun and the almost i almost want to call it a role-playing element creeps into the game right is you can have these individual characters that you assign personality to maybe even name give them names give them special upgrades and it's cool to be able to see them perform better So hero points and all the rules that revolve around characters are kind of a way to give them, for lack of a better term, plot armor and just relevance on the battlefield. Mm -hmm.
1: And you never know when you're in a tight spot in the middle of a game and one of these little abilities that you didn't think you could rely on really comes through and saves you. And uh, suddenly you're thinking about naming that no-name sergeant with uh, with the lucky dice.
0: Well, that is everything on characters. Uh, Next time we will touch on terrain and probably unit types, which will probably then lead into a discussion on vehicles, which while a type of unit are, there are probably as many, as much as we could say about vehicles as all other unit types put together. So, um, But that, it looks like, based on our time here, is going to be another episode. So, uh, unless anyone has any parting uh, words, this is the end of episode two. All right. We will see everyone next time. Uh, No Camera Podcast, over.